I need like 10 spray tans because <laughs> next to you, <laughs> I, look, I put on extra bronzer today. And let's just say, let me just say, I still look like a ghost next to you. You're so tropical. I'm so tropical. <laughs> I have particularly been getting a lot of teasing about this this week because I was in Arizona last week. And I think we've made it pretty clear in the podcast before that I am a sun worshiper, an unabashed sun worshiper. But last night I was on a Zoom with a bunch of Matt's friends who were doing a fantasy draft and I had set it up for them. So I was just saying hi to everybody, some people I hadn't seen in a long time. And they're... <laughs> The guys are all like commenting about my, how tan I am. And somebody cracked an SPF 50 joke. And I was like, hold on a second. I want to make this very clear. This is an SPF 50 with a brim hat. Look, <laughs> I just. You're one of those people. It's just my skin. It's a curse. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I feel very sorry for you. But you still absolutely look gorgeous, of course. Uh, uh, uh. Well, thank you for that, my friend. But See, I can't pull off the light skin. I like the translucent nature of my skin. <laughs> yeah. Dead sexy. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I'm like one of those English aristocrats from the 1500s that you can see their veins. Porcelain skin. Yes. <laughs> That's the way we describe it so that it sounds very elegant. Right. It's porcelain. Mm -hmm. I'm like a clay pot. <laughs> Oh, you're gorgeous. This is a great tangent. <laughs> Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. This is a really funny experience getting on to record today because it's so familiar and yet we haven't done this in a while and we're about to launch season three. three. I guess by the time you hear this, we are launching season three. <laughs> yes, it's now. The future it's, is now. It's happened. <laughs> yes. It's great. It's super exciting. I can't believe we've been doing this for two whole years and we're entering our third year. Yeah. And we still want to do it. <laughs> Somehow we're still having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I've been spending some time thinking about this idea of business ownership and that when you create something and turn it into a business or whatever it is, any creative venture, it's like its own life force. It has its own kind of energy. And then the people that are contributing to it, it's that amalgamation of things that creates what it is and that it grows and develops over time and it becomes more fleshed out. I know we've been talking about this a lot in Feelocentric world that it seems like the further we go, it's not that we aren't hitting our challenges, but we're also getting so much clarity on what it is that we're doing and what we want to be able to put out there in the world. This is cool to see it take shape. And this idea that individual people grow, so do the things that we create. Yeah, because we are growing and we have different ideas than when we started. And now we've got a much better picture of what we want. Now we're doing something that's tangentially related, but it's still in the same spirit. Yeah. It's really fun. It is really fun. And it's fun to be in a position where we're actively working to expand our team. This operation of ours is going to include more voices in it, which is really cool. It's going to yeah. be an exciting year. 
I know we had some conversations about this, but it's something that's been sort of in the forefront of our minds as the season starts in freelancer world, this feeling of getting the calendar filled. Mm. Yeah, there's always that time in mid to late August where you get a little nervous, you get a little anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh gosh, am I going to have work? What's going on? Why is no one calling me? Do they still like me? Am I still on so-and-so's list? I was very aware of that this month. I don't think it was like this a year ago because we were still in that iffy, Mm -hmm. what will happen season life pandemic stuff. Right. So it's been a while since the start of the season anxiousness. And I'm really into trying to recognize feelings for what they are. And I think I shared this with you. We were on a meeting and I was like, you know, it's feeling that powerlessness. Because really, in terms of the gigs that a contractor calls you for, that is how it feels. Because there's not much you can do beyond dropping a line, letting people know you're on their radars, trying to get on someone's radar again, or stay on the radar. And you can only do so much of that. And then the practices in just letting go and seeing what happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. And sure enough, the calls come. I think the conversations we've been having these last couple of years have prepared us for those types of situations. Whereas Mm. in the before times, before Viola Centric, I would have mired in that anxiety a little more than I probably did this time around. So I was grateful for that. Yeah, there's a lot of trust that you have to have and just being okay with having that feeling. And just know, friends, that whatever you've built up in your head, it's probably not that bad. Yes. That is human nature. We tend to catastrophize all of these feelings and jump to conclusions and make things up literally from nothing. Mm -hmm. You imagine people having conversations without you or about you. And so rarely is that actually the case. So just know that it's probably not as bad as you're making it out to be in your head. Yeah, totally. That's such a great point. And I feel grateful to be in a position through the type of work we do, because that's one of the things that has been so amazing for us in Viola Centric is the desire to inspire musicians to feel a sense of agency in their lives. It comes from a very authentic place because you and I are doing that work. And so I'm grateful in that way because I have had the opportunity to talk with many of my colleagues where I can hear them telling a story to themselves about something. And my first instinct is to say, we don't know if that's true. You know, Mm -hmm. it's much easier to assume the worst than it is to give someone the benefit of the doubt or to think positively. It's really a challenge to do that. And it takes some work. But if you're a freelancer like us and you went through that roller coaster of emotions this month, (laughs) that's normal. Yep, totally normal. It's good to be on the side of things getting rolling. You know, kids going back to school and teaching and mm-hmm. getting things picked back up, including a podcast. Yes. What a segue. What a segue, Liz. Thanks. I'm working on it. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so that brings us to why we're here today. Yes. And it's to bring to you the very first episode of season three of the Viola Centric podcast <laughs> featuring Lauren Spaulding, aka Monochrome Viola. We actually met her online first. She was an Instagram friend. So there's one in the column of the benefits of social media, right? Totally. Yes, the networking possibilities are quite literally endless. Yeah. I really feel like if you're exploring those kind of connections in your field and you have the intention of making them into real life connections, then that's definitely a benefit of social media. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, so glad that we did make that connection Mm -hmm. and we met her in real life at 
the American Viola Society Festival and International Viola Congress. She's a fantastic player, a fantastic human. Mm-hmm. She's so thoughtful and so charismatic. We were talking about this, how yes. when you watch her perform, there is just some je ne sais quoi, something about her that is so magnetic when she's playing that you can't help but just fall in love and be entertained. Your eye is just drawn to her. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just like that in real life. Yeah. She's been shedding her monochrome viola shield and coming out mm-hmm. into the music world as herself through the various chamber music stuff she's doing, which is cool to see. Really cool to see. Yeah. yeah she's fantastic. Just so great. It was a great conversation, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. What a get. Yeah. Enjoy this conversation with Lauren Spalding. This season is brought to you in part by Aria Lights, the LED music stand light brand chosen by professionals. Liz and I can honestly say that we are thrilled to welcome Aria Lights as a sponsor. I don't know about you, Liz, but I've been obsessed with Aria Lights ever since they came on the scene. I saw professionals in the Opera House Orchestra using them, and when my husband bought me one for Christmas last year, I swear, I did a little happy dance when I opened the package. (laughs) These are hands down the best LED music stand lights available. Yes, and they're used by lots of pros. Organizations like the Philly Orchestra, Toronto, New York, Cleveland, LA Opera, Frozen on Broadway, and so many more. Aria Light's beautiful design not only lights four pages of music completely evenly from top to bottom, it also shields the conductor, other musicians, and the audience from that annoying blindness-inducing light bleed from poorly angled stand lights. If you know, you know. Oh, yes, I know. And there are so many features that make these the best option on the market. So just know that if you're ready to upgrade your stand light, you cannot go wrong with Aria Lights. Learn more at arialights.com or by finding the link in our episode notes. And tell them Liz and Steph at Feelocentric sent you. It's that time of year. We're back to school and we are back to gigging. Even if you're not mentally ready for the season, you can count on our season sponsor, Potter Violins, to get your equipment ready. When's the last time you reheared your bow, Steph? Oh, I feel like it was recently, but I bet it's been over six months. So I got to get over there and get it freshened up. Oh, and I need new backup strings and an instrument adjustment. Sounds like it might be about time. Yeah. I do love to get in there for a visit to our favorite technicians as we approach the change of season. Hmm, maybe I need a new case, too. (laughs) And as we've said before, if you need a rental instrument, they're the place to go. My daughter and many of my students rent from Potters, and the instruments are really fantastic, even the smaller violas. Yes. Get back to your music this season with confidence by visiting Potter Violins so your equipment will be ready, even if you might need a bit more of a warm-up. Stephanie and I are so happy to welcome back the Arcrest as a sponsor for season three. We have worked with Aaron and Tigran, who are the inventors of this revolutionary shoulder rest solution for about a year now, and we are all in. We love supporting a small business like theirs that makes a product that really works and continues to evolve. That's right, and we happen to know that they are always working on new improved prototypes. But what we've always loved is that the Arcrest is simple and elegant and completely customizable. You can choose the thickness of the padding and place it virtually anywhere you want on the back of your instrument. And playing with it allows for complete freedom of movement. Not to mention that it makes your instrument resonate more fully because it doesn't dampen the sound. So if you're ready to learn more, visit thearcrest.com. And new for this season, 
Use the code VIOLACENTRIC at checkout for 10% off your purchase with Arcrest. You like my PPPs? Yes. Oh, yeah. PPPs on Pupa Point. (laughs) 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 Our guest today is violist, soloist, chamber musician, and social media genius, Lauren Spaulding. Under the alias of Monochrome Viola on Instagram, her anonymous practice blog, Lauren has established herself as a rising, genre-defying soloist and chamber musician. She's currently in residence at the University of Maryland in our neck of the woods as the violist in the acclaimed Talia String Quartet. And her award-winning viola duo with Aria Cherigosha, Tala Rouge, is on fire as well. Fresh off their first prize award at the Francis Walton competition this summer. We were so happy to celebrate virtually with you after you guys won that. It was so exciting because we had just met you. It is with so much excitement and heartfelt joy that we welcome our friend, the fabulous Lauren Spalding, to the Viola-Centric podcast. Hi, Liz. Hi, Stephanie. We've been looking forward to this for so long. This is amazing. I mean, this is every violist dream, right? You know you've made it, right? (laughs) Liz and I were perusing all of your online offerings in preparation, and you share that you have this belief that good music is good music, and that you use your love for genre-bending performance to question the societal perception of classical music and to advocate for composers of all genders, identities, ethnicities, and backgrounds. How would you describe the current societal perception of classical music? Actually, I think it's become more and more relevant since the pandemic. I think it's really woken a lot of people up. Personally, I feel like we forget that Beethoven wrote most of his music based off folk themes. They were music Mm. that people recognized in his time. And it got lost in the lineage of classical music that what we love is what we recognize and what we come to understand as audience members are the things that we really connected with in our own understanding of sound and perception. So this is maybe one of the things that I'm really excited to see in the classical music world right now. Things are shifting The American sound is being explored for what it is from the spirituals, from the earth, from the land. We've been on tour with Dvorak all year, and it really changes an audience member's perception of the American string quartet when you place it after a bunch of folk music. Mm. When we get to the viola solo in the middle, it's a different vibe when you realize it's just a hootenanny. <laughs> to go back to your question, this change in classical music is really important, looking at the perception of what Beethoven was in his time and how we continue to make that relevant in our time. Yeah, it's all about context, right? Yeah, exactly. These things, we've plucked them out of a period of time and performed them all right next to each other without any context of this is where this came from. So people might have a harder time latching onto it without the context. Oh, yeah. The orchestra mode of in time, in tune, with perfect elegance everywhere. If you look at Brandenburg 6, we're doing that this season, It's just a beer dance. (laughs) It's a joke where the violas offset one note because they probably were anyways, you know? (laughs) Right? They couldn't hear each other in that noisy pub or whatever. Exactly. I think that the more we can do to break that mold and how can we meet the people our age where they are? Mm -hmm. And really, it's an education thing almost. This music is accessible. Yeah. Right. 
to anyone. It doesn't matter if you played it or you've heard it before. This idea that it's something that only a certain person could understand. Man, I want to break out of that. (laughs) Yeah. Chris from Talia String Quartet, he's our first violinist. He always says that everything can be accessible when played with the right vigor, zest. And I think that's something that we all strive to do in our own chamber performances. We want people to understand and meet us on our level, the way that we love the music, but not necessarily from being educated as a classical musician, just because we love music. You say on your website, good music is good music. Mm -hmm. How would you define good music then? Yeah, I guess for me, I just love a good bop, you know? (laughs) Yes, totally. I just want it to be good. Good music reminds me of other times. Maybe that's something I relate to. And through doing my blog over the years, I think the pieces that people related to most, they were never the Beethoven I had to practice or the Dvorak. They were La Vie and Rose and other incredible music from pop music to folk music. People just enjoy the music that they find relatable. And as a culture, at least, we all have some connections on what we find relatable, like the Beatles. Whether you love it or not, you definitely know it, and it becomes part of who you are and your understanding of music and part of your arsenal when you're listening to detect sounds. One of the things that you do, especially with your duo, is you commission composers to create new music. Mm-hmm. So how does new music fit into that? Because some people feel like new music can be kind of unaccessible. Talia and Talaruj both do this. We commission works by people who we find relatable. So with Talia, we're playing a work based on traditional Indian music right now. And it's for voice, violin, viola, and cello. Because fun fact, Kamiko is a trained soprano. Very cool. Wow. (laughs) Go Kamiko. And that's Avril Akshaya Tucker. And she wrote us a really incredible work. And then same with Tala Rouge is right now we worked with Jesse Montgomery's management to do her duo for violin and cello and rearrange it for two violas. Sillily hard. (laughs) So hard. (laughs) But we look for voices that are not trying to be too avant-garde, that are not above my head, because my threshold for (laughs) what I personally understand is pretty run-of-the-mill. I like good music that I can bop to, and that's not necessarily always Webern or Schoenberg, which are also great, but maybe not what I want to play every day. We just recently finished arranging Limestone and Felt by Carolyn Shaw, and that's going to make its debut this summer. It's going to be great. Oh, great. Oh, I can't wait. It's so good. Over the summer, I worked with a colleague, Patrick Lestrange. Shout out to Patrick. He's a great viola teacher here in the area. And he puts together a viola boot camp through our local prep division of George Mason. It's for violists. So using the term boot camp is a little misleading, I would say. In fact, it started with a violin boot camp in the same division of the program. And I think this was like, well, you do one for violinists. Let's do one for violists. But we operate very differently. It's pretty laid back. It's like a viola hang. Yeah, it's a viola hang. Let's just call it (laughs) what it is. (laughs) So Lauren and Aria agreed to come and be our special guest presenters and... Boy, you had their attention just from the moment you started talking and playing. And you were playing a lot of new music. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think all of it. It was. I think yeah. so. I think you played a Stamets duo. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did do one, which was also a bop. <laughs> <laughs> to use your word, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a total bop. When you think about performance and how to engage these audiences that are non-traditional, I think a group of sixteen adolescents is probably a great test audience because if you lose them, you're going to lose them quick. And I think that combination of information that you shared with them. Because I do think talking about what we're doing just makes Mm -hmm. us more relatable. And then the pieces you chose and the way that you two engage with each other when you play. And Stephanie and I, of course, had the treat of watching you play Jesse Montgomery at the AVS Festival. Mm -hmm. Just to brag on you a little bit, I feel like. That's kind. You guys were so great. Uh, Oh, yeah. And just to watch you, it's something we don't consider as classical musicians. I think because a lot of us grow up in the orchestral space where we're told Mm. to fit into the section. Chamber music is a completely different thing. And that's one of your most charismatic qualities as a performer, your willingness to engage with people on stage. I bet you've always been this way. (laughs) I've worked very hard to tone it down, like to not do it, because it's so disliked on the other side of things. By whom? Oh, you mean orchestral? Outside of chamber music. So I've learned it's taken me very many years to have both sides. Now I'm allowed to do it again. But there's a great quote. Essentially, it says, you're only popular when popular opinion thinks highly of you. Mm. I've been told many times, you're never going to match me. Someone directly told me that and would never play with me again. Though they never tried to match me. But it took me years to realize that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, a match is a compromise, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Isn't it like a meeting in the middle? You meet in the middle and anyway. you let go of some ego. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. <laughs> I've really struggled with that over the years, finding the balance between what's appropriate and acceptable in a normal standard and what is exceptional and what can be admired when seen in a different light. Yeah. Oh, that's put so beautifully. Very familiar with that striking of the balance. But man, do I wish we didn't have to think about those things. I wish we could just be as we are. If somebody doesn't want to move a lot, don't make a move. And if somebody wants to move and they're feeling it and it helps in the expressiveness, an audience enjoys that. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't think there's anyone sitting in our concerts in the audience and going, you know what I wish is that people just didn't move. I wish they didn't move at all. I wish there was no visual stimulation at all in an orchestra. <laughs> yeah. yeah. wish they stayed perfectly still. That's what I look for in an audience. <laughs> yes. No movement. Mm-mm. Well, s- someone came up to me and was like, I love watching you. You're basically Peter Pan. <laughs> okay. That is, that's so on point. That was, yes. I love that. They nailed it. Yeah. And then someone else came up. Oh, this was just so funny. They were like, I teach second graders and you have ADHD. And I'm like, I do. Okay. And I was like, uh, <laughs> which is very shocking. She just like diagnosed me right away from watching me on stage. I was like, okay, you're not wrong. Maybe a little <laughs> weird to say, but you're not wrong. <laughs> I'm going to be woo woo for a second, Stephanie. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why people subscribe. Woo granted. They don't subscribe for me. For the- yes, they do. <laughs> 
I do believe that oftentimes things present themselves at the right time in the right place. Mm. You mentioned this in your bio, having struggled with learning disabilities and your queer identity in your youth, that you hold a special passion for inspiring young neuroatypical and LGBTQ plus musicians to pursue the arts. The reason I feel this is a little kismetic is I was just diagnosed with ADHD about two months ago. Congrats. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's been a long process of years of cognitive therapy trying to understand why certain things are the way they are in my life and a lot of effort to cognitively change behaviors and running up against a wall. Oh, yeah. My therapist and I started talking about this and it was a long process. And for anybody who's gone through it, I know it will resonate to find someone who can do a proper evaluation and then get the diagnosis and then Mm -hmm. meet with someone if you're exploring medication I'm learning the statistics of particularly if you are female when you're young, you get misdiagnosed or just completely undiagnosed because most of your symptoms are not that overt. So thank you for sharing that openly. I'm learning a lot right now about this. I will probably be sharing my experiences too. Mm -hmm. But for you, what was that experience like for you? When did you discover your neuroatypicalness? Yeah. How has it played into the way you learn and perform music? Thank you for sharing also. I know that's mm-hmm. a very vulnerable thing to go into. and Totally. I think it's worth talking about. I think it's a conversation that people overlook. I'm glad to go into this. I joined Suzuki when I was young, Suzuki Piano, but I got kicked out after a couple weeks because I chatted too much or something. Who knows what it was, but I got kicked out of three or four grades. I had a lot of trouble in school, difficulty finding my place with friends, and was just a little too much. It took me a long time to figure out how to keep that part of you in control. And I think in second grade, I wasn't allowed to come back to school until I was medicated. So I was medicated from second grade to, I probably stopped around college or kind of on and off. And, you know, I'm not sad about it or anything. It's just what it is. But I maybe had a path that many people didn't. So while a lot of musicians were practicing when they were four, you couldn't even get me to spell a word without hanging backwards off the couch. Yeah, you're speaking my life. (laughs) (laughs) But then I found music. So I started music very late. I'd taken some lessons and had trouble. But around 15, I realized that if you were talented, people liked you no matter what. So I started to fall in love with music. I wasn't able to play a concerto at the end of high school. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. So I went into neuroscience for two years and had my first experience at Eastern Music Festival. And one of my friends said, you're the dumbest, smartest musician I've ever met. Thank you. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. So she helped me transfer into music and figure out how to be good when people are confused by you. I think that our listeners are going to find a lot of inspiration in that path. In the classical music world, we're taught that if you don't start when you're four, then (laughs) there's no hope for you. But you can find your own path into making it something that you love. I'm very happy doing what I do. And pro tip, when you practice, you get better. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. And then I started practicing. (laughs) It's a fun fact. (laughs) 
I think this is a really meaningful thing to share. And I feel very similar about music. I did experience some rough periods of bullying as a kid. And I knew I was different. And I didn't know how to be less different. And no matter how hard I tried not to be, it didn't work. And in fact, embracing being the weird kid who plays viola or whatever turned Mm -hmm. me into some version of myself that I felt really happy with. I think we all can relate to that. My mom would put me upstairs and be like, go practice for an hour. And I'd be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this time. I would put a CD on of whatever I was learning and just play along with it. Oh, that's cool. That's how I got through 15 years of learning how to play the viola was like that. (laughs) I still can't name the notes on the C string easily. I still have to like count them like E, F, or C, D. Oh, C, I even forgot D, C, D. It's just a brain thing. I don't know why. It's a mental block. Yeah, yeah. I didn't understand how to read any notes above A on the A string until grad school. Where's A? <laughs> We're That's the one that we could play as a harmonic. Harmonic. Oh, that one. Not yeah. the open A. Thank yeah, yeah. God. Okay. I could find that. And then beyond that, I'd be like, I don't know what note that is. My grad school teacher's like, okay. I know. (laughs) We're going to figure this out. Oh, yeah. That's okay, because you're not going to use it. But like, for 10% of your viola playing careers. It's true. (laughs) It's It's so funny. Have you come up with some really great hacks for practice that you find really help you stay focused? One of the huge ones was monochrome viola. was a huge, huge hack for continuing to practice and having accountability. I always had the ridiculous Zanga blogs or MySpace blogs that were secret. You could write, but no one knew who was writing and who was saying these things. I always really liked that. You had connection and people around you who agreed or disagreed. But you had that anonymity. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You had this privacy to actually be yourself. I broke my hand five years ago. Oh my God. And I just got the metal rod out eight days ago. When I broke it, I was out of playing for a couple months. Getting back into it, I was like, do I go be a dentist or do I practice? This was the decision. Then I was like, do I really want to put my face while I sound like I just had a broken hand all over the internet? And the answer was obviously no. My friend at the time threw a mask at me and said, here, put this on as a joke. Never looked back. (laughs) So all of us just need anonymous practice blogs and we'll be good to go. I think so. Okay, Liz. I've been thinking about starting a new one where no one knows who I am. Ooh. (gasps) Okay, we'll cut this out of the episode so no one knows you're planning. (laughs) There's no way Monochrome would do another anonymous account, right? They'd never see it coming. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Never in a million years, right? (laughs) With like a unicorn mask this time or something. Ooh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, you could get very creative. Now I want to talk about Monochrome Viola. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know where it came from and why you started it and why it was anonymous. And I don't think very many people know that story. Mm -hmm. Is that true? I think people originally on some of the posts knew something, but it became way more than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, I think that's pretty special knowledge. I love it. Yeah. Much like Drew Ford, who we talked with last year, you ended up giving the viola a voice out there for Mm. a current generation of people that appreciate that uniqueness and you're doing something that nobody else was doing. It was a total creative outlet. 
Yeah, well, something we think about a lot in Tal Rouge actually is the viola hasn't really had a soloistic voice. I think definitely with monochrome viola, you've shown it in a light that's more relatable mm. to a lot of people of our generation who are on social media. And they might not watch because it's viola, but they might watch because it's something a little bit different. So maybe the uniqueness of monochrome viola and that viola kid and all of this uniqueness is what is viola. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I think that has a lot of empowerment for us viola kind. Definitely. I've been thinking about this a lot. The way we have talked taught traditionally for a long time is to just teach it as a bigger violin and that the technique is similar. I think a lot of the time it results in us being uncomfortable and because Mm. we're uncomfortable we end up being a little bit stuck and so that promotion of the freedom of movement with the instrument you allow the instrument to move with you you move your body in a way that feels natural and I think that is very unique to the individual learning the instrument the size of the instrument the way the instrument sounds and it can't be taught in a cookie cutter setting. Yeah. And so I think it speaks to this idea that the instrument itself and maybe the people who choose to play it yep. can't be put in a box. Yeah. You know? Don't put me in a box, man. Don't put us in a box, man. <laughs> I played almost a 17 inch instrument basically oh <laughs> from high school until last year. It's huge. And so if you're going to play in the C string and you want a loud sound, you like have to jump. I'm a small little girl, you know, I'm tiny. I just recently changed to 15 and a half. (gasps) Small. You heard it here, folks. Whoa. I'm so loud, but loud is not a character. I should be able to be all the things. And (laughs) having an instrument that's smaller for me personally works well because then I'm a little less loud, (laughs) just naturally. Your personality and your sound is so big that I just always assumed that you played at least a 16 and a half or 17. Not to get too shop talky here for people who are not violists, but they really do range in size from Mm. 15 inches all the way up to 17 plus, Mm -hmm. which is very taxing on the body. And so I find it wonderfully surprising that you're playing a smaller instrument. It gives all of us the freedom to consider that and not feel like less of a violist. (laughs) I really struggled with that. Dude, I struggled so hard. I am missing a little bit of the sound I used to have, but you always sacrifice something. And Mm -hmm. I would rather a straight back and a healthy long career Mm -hmm. than that little 10% of, whoa, what a tone. I'd like to be able to continue to do music as long as I can. And it's just not healthy to play on something that large anymore. I am just amazed at the path that you've created for yourself and Mm -hmm. that you are cobbling together a career instead of going down one path and Mm -hmm. expecting that to be your everything. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to make chamber music a part of their career? As someone who was never the superstar of the studio, who was never the one that the teachers gave the extra attention to, I think it's really important to become specialized. I think if you want to do chamber music, learn chamber music, play along with people, understand what your role in chamber music is, experience, experience, experience. But then the other thing is sometimes in the freelance world, people forget about you really quickly. (laughs) If you don't sub with someone, if you say no, that's usually fine. But if you say no like four or five times in a row, there's always some new hotshot in town. So I think you just always have to find a way to continue to be relevant and to continue to, I don't mean this in an egocentric way, but just have importance in the community and have a presence that is seen. 
I do a lot of social media and sometimes I'm like, I have to post again. But at the same time, I connect with so many people on these posts who I don't see in my everyday life. And we continue to develop our relationship and our friendship. My advice, be kind, work your butt off and be yourself in a way that isn't about you. It's about the community and what you can give and who you can be for a group. I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone about the freelance stuff and the gigs Mm. and the replaceability. And I happen to be thinking about this particular violinist I know who's a phenomenal violinist, the concertmaster of a regional orchestra, won that audition to get there. They could probably get any job they wanted, but I don't see them around so much in the D.C scene. And I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, I bet that's just because in some cases, you've got to be willing to be in the rat race, you've got to be willing to say yes, every time you get called, or you will be replaced. And so if you find those creative outlets elsewhere, the joy of playing is more unique to you. And I think chamber music is a great way to do that. It's a huge part of my life too. And I don't think I would have a satisfying of a career if I didn't have those opportunities. Just having these different expressive places, I think it's very challenging to find a group of people that you can work with in the long term. Just... Trying to find four people who can work together and have a good relationship is very challenging. I never in a zillion years thought I would meet a chamber music group on Instagram. Talia asked me to join and I responded within five minutes and I said, yes, right away. And when you ask someone to join a quartet or to try out with a quartet, that's the answer you hope for. Not like, I don't know, I'm kind of busy, but I'm interested. So I responded right away. We had a trial period, which was me flying up to their house and staying with them for a week. And we stayed up every night until 4 a.m. talking and having a little bit of wine and listening to Chris's records and eating Kamiko's incredible cooking and laughing with TT over everything. We just all got along on a personal level. And I think that was really important. When you get into a quartet, you never really know what you're going into. So the real trial was the next year that I just had. And as individuals, all three of them are incredible. They're wonderful humans. They care about what they do. They love music. They're yes and people. They like encourage you to be the best you and when something's wrong or when something's off or when something needs some learning, they just go learn it. So it's been a great experience. But that's so lovely. How lucky that you met these randos on Instagram and now you have a loving communal quartet experience. Yeah. TT moved to New York. So we're actually doing a cello search right now. Fingers crossed. We find our next little soulmate soon and (laughs) move on from there. You brought up a lot of aspects of the personalities of the group that I think are important to consider if you're in the midst of trying to find people to play with. And it doesn't always happen overnight. I'm sure you guys have had to navigate the dynamics of disagreeing. I find with age, it becomes a little easier to navigate those dynamics. Yeah, me too. But from what I've experienced interacting with the other members of the quartet, it is a great vibe. Yeah. 
You've been giving some really great nuggets of advice. You mentioned in your bio that it's important that you're inspiring young people who are either neuroatypical or of the LGBTQ plus community Mm -hmm. to explore music as a path. And I'm just thinking about the way we can, as educators, start seeing our students as individual human beings and that not everybody can be put into that kind of box. A lot of times I feel like teachers meet you where you're at. If you can play the notes, and you're in tune, they think you're talented and they think that's it. But sometimes there's a lot more going on in people's lives that can get overlooked or a lot more in people's brains or minds that can get overlooked. Someone really stressed isn't going to be practicing. Someone who can't focus isn't going to be practicing. There were many lessons that I had where my teachers were very angry and painstakingly went through note by note to help me correct all of my wrong notes because I'm slightly dyslexic, so I couldn't read them right. Maybe had the teachers done that in a way that was kinder, where I wasn't some annoyance or wasting their time, I think I would have been happier and learned quicker. I feel the teachers can sometimes be very dismissive of students that don't learn at home, but sometimes Mm. learning at home isn't the right place for everyone. Sometimes if we have students who need to practice in lessons, that's okay. I try and treat my students who struggle with that the same way. I try and celebrate learning together and we do a lot of duos together that really helped me. Having the accountability outside of myself, whether it's the blog, whether it's a chamber group, whether it's working with a teacher, these are the kinds of things that really helped me. And I think students that struggled in a similar way that I do could really benefit from the extra kindness of realizing that if someone doesn't practice, it's really okay. (laughs) Just help them grow. That's your job. Yeah. Yeah. And there could be a million reasons why that student hasn't practiced because the shame that's associated with it can compound over time. (laughs) And I think that's really great. Oh my gosh, this has been so great. Lauren, thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. So many great things that I did not know going into this conversation. Being with you is just a shot of cool, fresh air. That's kind. And likewise, we've been chatting off and on for years now. I I think I saw y'all start the Olacentric podcast and have followed along ever since. So I'm truly honored to be among your people that you have on here. And I'm wishing lots of success and adventures for you both. And can't wait to cross paths again in D.C. Yeah. For a barbecue. Oh, yeah. We're supposed to have a barbecue. (laughs) We need to make that happen. I'm free in November. (laughs) I know. I know, girl. That's about about where we are now. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our season three sponsors, Arcrest, Aria Lights, and Potter Violins. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo, and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.